Okay, last inning. Gear up the neurons. I have the good fortune of introducing John Bruna today. Um, for all of us mental health types here, we try to find ways of dealing with the physical and emotional symptoms of anxiety. A lot of them are autonomic, heart rate, blood pressure, rate of breathing, depth of breathing, the relaxation of skeletal muscle, neck, jaw, upper extremity, lower extremity, with or without medications. And we're all interested in finding ways of doing this as naturally as possible. And John's going to lead us through a discussion of that. Um, Mindfulness has become almost such a buzzword, it's hard to know what we're talking about. I think he's gonna clarify that, and I know he wants to separate what's the myth from the fact. Um, John's journey is interesting. I hope he will share some. This is a man who started teaching uh, high school near Compton in social studies and history, and his life got shirred, stirred and shaken somewhere along the way and it wasn't working, and he ran into a Tapist monk, became interested, and took six years of Buddhist monastic training. And now, as you know, he's no stranger to this audience. He is an author and a presenter um, of workshops and presentations. John, help us uh, <clears throat> educate us, help us sort out. The real, the real pertinent questions are, do we have to do an hour a day do we, do we have to wear linen, and do we have to levitate? John Bruno. Thank you, Dr. Nelson. Uh, hello, everybody. I am John Bruna, and it is such a joy to be here with all of you and uh, such an incredible honor to be able to share a presentation with Judy and John. You know, I feel like I don't even need my own slides. You know, we could just bring theirs back up because there's such a wealth of information there. And hopefully my job today would be how do we put this into practice, right? It's one thing to know some things, but how do we do these things? How do we do these things? I was once talking to um, a former sponsee someone I sponsored in recovery, and he shared something with me. He shared something that I think we've all said, I think we've all heard, and he said, I just don't know what to do. And when I heard that, something in me said, you know, that's not true. That's not true. So I asked him a different question. I said, what would be the healthy thing to do? And you know what? He had an answer. So often we don't know what to do, but if we step back and ask ourselves, what would be the healthy thing to do? We will have an answer, won't we? And then, of course, I said, well, why don't you try that? <laughs> right. Yeah, he didn't hang up, but he was thinking about it. <laughs> And so I think this is the fascinating journey around mindfulness, around recovery, about learning how to live, is that fundamentally, I think we already have our answers. I don't think it's a great mystery that we can sit down and write down five things to do to improve your life, right? The problem is we can't do them. And so why can't we do the things that we absolutely know will improve our lives? And I think that's what we've been talking about here is we've got some ingrained habits, some tendencies, some patterns that are compelling us to act and react in certain ways. And this is all going on underneath the surface, even though if I were to pause, I could probably answer the question, what would be a healthy thing to do? The problem is, as John pointed out, that pause isn't there, is it? So, as we engage in this, I know I was told to tell a little bit about myself. 
Uh, but I'm conscious of time. Uh, and so uh, just a, the very, very shortest summary is I am a person in recovery. I was fortunate to find recovery back in 1984. I've been in continuous recovery since then. Uh, and I'm someone who came from a background of uh, violence and abuse, of, of not abuse from my parents, but abuse in terms of uh, drive-bys in my house. Uh, I grew up in the greater LA area. So I grew up in an atmosphere of you know, just drugs and violence and survival. And uh, my best efforts got me to being homeless and living under a bridge and uh, losing any ounce of dignity I had in my life. I was fortunate enough to find recovery at the age of uh, almost 22. And then that began a journey of, uh, of finding a way to learn the fundamental lesson that we're going to be talking about today. And that fundamental lesson is, I'm okay. You know what, I'm enough right now, in this moment, as John was pointing out. What would it be like to absolutely know that you're okay? What's that like? And I think that's what recovery's about, is learning that we're okay. So this kid who couldn't talk, this kid who didn't know how to <laughs> act like a normal human being in any way, shape, or form, emotionally Neanderthal uh, would be uh, the way I, I got in here. Uh, then learned to uh, become a counselor. I was trained in substance abuse counseling back in the early 90s. I went to UCLA back in 1991. And, um, and then I uh, went on, became a school teacher. I got to teach uh, high school, kicking it with the homies in the North Strong Beach. Uh, and then uh, I was able to meet an old uh, Tibetan Lama and um, a great influence on my life. And so I was ordained. I spent uh, the next six years of my life as an ordained Buddhist monk. Uh, three of those years, I got to teach high school in robes. <laughs> so that was pretty cool. And, uh, and then I came out of uh, monastic life in 2012. And so you know, here we are now with uh, an opportunity, an opportunity I've had to really see if all these life lessons I've had could be meaningful for others. So uh, what I'm going to share is based in science, based in what we've learned, but also based in a very personal experience of my own, and that is that I am someone who has lived with nothing, lived homeless, um, I'm someone who also was a senior account manager of a management healthcare corporation <laughs> and played golf at a country club. Uh, and I'm also a single parent. I'm also someone who had lost my daughter because of my abusive behaviors. I'm also someone who has found recovery. I've been a teacher. I've been a Buddhist monk, a counselor. I was an auto mechanic. And I even had my own carpet cleaning business for a little bit. Johnny's Carpet Care. <laughs> Get Johnny on the spot. <laughs> And what I found through that whole evolution of uh, my personal journey was that whether I had money, didn't have money, whether I was a blue-collar worker or a white-collar worker, whether I was a single parent or whether I was married, whether I was divorced, whether uh, all those things, those were not what were going to make me okay. That all of us here, whether we have resources or don't have resources, we are all subject to these things that we're being talked about. <laughs> we are all subject to developing habits and patterns and tendencies that are either healthy or unhealthy. Feelings of insecurity, feelings of being okay at times, a quest, a quest for happiness, a quest for well-being. And in that very quest, we're often creating a lot of suffering <laughs> in our own lives. And the outsides aren't going to matter nearly as much as the inside. As Judy talked about, we need that safe inner space. We need that baseline, that inner secure baseline to be okay. And so we're going to touch base on that just a little bit about how do we develop that. Because we're often looking for it in the wrong places, right? We're looking for happiness in all the wrong places. It's like a bad country song. <laughs> well, maybe a good country song, actually. 
So, yeah, I do want to start with this idea, what is mindfulness? As John pointed out, you know, uh, buzzword. What's mindfulness? Anybody know what mindfulness is? Staying what? Awake. Staying awake? Aware. Oh. Aware. Aware. Staying aware. Thank you. You have a great accent. Yes. So being aware. Being aware is a part of mindfulness, right? Yes. Being present. I'm present. I'm talking to you now. I'm present. Nobody's brave. Yes. Look at that, learning how to live life more skillfully, right? In order to do any skill, you would need to be present and mindful, right? And to be um, able to engage in that process in a way that's meaningful, hopefully. Being now. Being here in the now, right? Now, what's present. Paying attention. Yeah, I'm so broke, I can't even pay attention. Anybody see that bumper sticker? So we have these ideas around mindfulness. We have uh, being aware, being present, being skillful. It's hard to be skillful if you're not present. It's hard to develop a skill if I'm not present. Uh, so what is it to be mindful? And first thing I just want to let you know is there is no approved definition. <laughs> Okay, there's no, this is what mindfulness is, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But I do want to run through a couple, whoops, I should point back there. So one of the most common definitions you'll hear is John Kabat-Zinn, so he's kind of known as the, the godfather of modern mindfulness here, right? And mindfulness means paying attention in a particular way on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally. So much like what we just shared, I'm present, I'm here, but I'm here in a particular way. Right? And that way, he's saying, on purpose, I'm consciously here. And I'm non-judgmental at this moment. And so John kind of gave a, a point of, of, can I experience this moment, knowing this is the way it's supposed to be happening. So that, that's one. And then we have this one from Dan Siegel, mindfulness in its most general sense, is about waking up from a life on automatic, being sensitive to novelty. So this is really critical. How much of your life are you actually there? How much is automatic? How much of your life is on automatic? When you drove here, are you aware of driving here? And how much of that drive were you aware of driving here? What is that novelty? Judy talked about just almost falling down with the leaves and the trees, right? Of being really present in that moment. And how much of our lives on automatic, or have we ever said something like, hey, I don't know where my keys are. I lost my keys. How about this one? What were we talking about? <laughs> Love that one. My personal favorite's this. Have you ever walked into a room, and then why did I come here? And if you ever want the answer to that, all you need to do is walk out of the room. <laughs> you ever notice that? You walk back out and go, oh yeah, I needed that thing. Our life is on autopilot. We are doing things uh, unconsciously all day long. As a matter of fact, the latest research shows we're not aware of what we're doing about half of the time that we're awake. About half of the time that we're awake, we don't know what we're doing in that moment. This is why we don't know where our car keys are, because <laughs> we weren't there when we put them down. My mind was on to something else. I wasn't there. We're not there. We, we live on autopilot. So one thing is to start being aware. This is a, you know what? Here's a day that will never come again in your life. That's a novel thing. We often will just skip that and think, wow, is it Saturday yet? Mindfulness is the aware, balanced, acceptance of present experience, not more complicated than that. It's opening and receiving the present moment, pleasant and pleasant, just is, with or without clinging to or rejecting it. So here's another description. But all three of these have something very much in common. It's this idea of accepting a present moment, the sort of non-judgmental, this is what's happening, rejecting, not rejecting. Now, those are all good definitions, and they're all provided in 
a context of something. But could there be a problem if you were to teach somebody this is mindfulness? Another one, non-elaborative, non-judgmental, present center awareness, each thought, feeling, sensation that arises. This is the one they're trying to get to be the universal, which I'm very much against. There's a reason that different perspectives have different definitions and things are done in different contexts. You can't even get a group of Buddhists to agree on what mindfulness is. And there's a reason for that. There's different perspectives and there's different applications and they're, they're all useful, including all of these definitions. But could there be a problem? For example, how about if I ask this question, is mindfulness good for you? Is it good for you? Is it? Is meditation good for you? <laughs> the Dalai Lama would say, uh, if you, you know, they asked him if you didn't have time to meditate, you know, 30 minutes, what would you do? He said, take an hour and meditate. Which is pretty funny. But uh, could disconnect you. So how about the real answer is it could be good for you. It could not be good for you. It could be neutral. It might be harmful. All of those are accurate answers. Because what meditation are you doing? Why are you doing it? Are you doing the proper meditation for? what you would like to achieve if I have PTSD and I'm relaxing my body and I'm uh, suddenly having a panic attack and can't breathe, probably not very good for you in that context. So it's not that we, all meditation is not the same. There's different meditations designed for different purposes to achieve different results. And if we treat them all the same, or we see this very cool picture of someone sitting there all zenned out, you know, on the beach, and you have this cool little tagline, if we all meditated, you know, we'd all have this wonderful peace. Well, is that true? And, um, and it's not necessarily true. Why are we meditating? It's important to know what meditation we're using. It's important to know what I'm trying to do with meditation. It's important to have a context. Because what we may find are things like this study, which I found pretty interesting. This uh, I just read about. It actually came out in January. Potential negative consequences. So you can see I'm giving you a pep talk. On uh, mindfulness in the moral domain. And so this was an interesting study. What they did was in these five trials, they had these people do either a short mindfulness exercise or listen to something else. Short mindfulness thing, listen to something else. Now, let me give you the context. The mindfulness activity is going to be about learning to be present in a non-judgmental way. And then, after that assignment, then they read about an instance where somebody was harmed. In this case, they just talked about um, like losing a friend's bicycle, something like that. And basically, what they found was if you did the mindfulness activity before the exercise, you actually uh, had less of a tendency to be compassionate and want to repair the damage. So you were blunted <laughs> from a more natural compassionate activity. The people who did not do the mindfulness exercise had much more compassion, wanted to repair, and wanted to help out. They also did the same thing with meat eaters. They showed the cruelty to animals, and if they did the mindfulness meditation, they had less compassion. So, out of context, I'm learning that I can be mindful, present in the moment, non-judgmental. So what? You're killing a bunch of animals. <laughs> hey, lost your bike. Sorry, you know, it happens. It's so important 
to remember that mindfulness or anything that we do, and as was illustrated, you know, I love the way John really talked about mindfulness in the sense of being aware of even am I leaning into a hug or am I not? Am I curious? You know, what am I bringing to that moment? So basically, this study, what they uh, really discovered is that you're not going to naturally be more empathetic or naturally more compassionate. That it's important to have a context of ethics and values and know why you're being mindful. Have a purpose for your mindfulness. Otherwise, we can learn how to be really good at disassociating. Probably not going to help you a lot. So here's, yeah, what their basic thing was. The five experiments they found, uh, that brief mindfulness exercise attenuated the moral reactions. So here's the thing about mindfulness that, that we want to tap into. And mindfulness is not this isolated skill. It's not this thing I learned to be OK for a moment. So much of our lives, that's what we're looking for, right? So if my brain is saying, I want to feel good, and I learn an exercise to feel good for a moment, and I feel good for a moment, what happens the next moment? What happens later when I can't achieve that? What happens when I don't feel good? Do, does my mind then say, I don't feel good. I need to do something. And as was pointed out with Judy's thing, this, this, this line that we're having, this homeostasis, we call it a, sort of a set point. We all have a set point. We, you know, it's our basis. We go back to this basis. Feel really good, come back to normal. Go, you know, not so good, come back to normal. Uh, my mind's chasing a, a state. And if we can learn some tools that give us this state and our mind starts believing that this is how I should be all the time, we're probably going to be uncomfortable most of the time. We're probably going to be uncomfortable. We're not going, is it OK to be a little nervous? Sure. Is it OK to be sad? Yeah. Why wouldn't you be sad if you just got some sad news? That I don't need to fix everything. That um, the ups and the downs of life are like the waves on the ocean. We experience them. But we can remember we're the ocean, not the waves. And as John was pointing out, we can step back and experience them without being swept up by them. So when we uh, just do anything, whether it's mindfulness, whether it's a drug, whether it's biking, whether it's whatever our thing is that's going to make me OK, that thing that's going to make me OK, my mind's going to be chasing that reward system. Stimulus-driven pleasure. And here's the thing about stimulus-driven pleasure. It doesn't last, right? Doesn't last. So the big problem in life, we often confuse stimulus-driven pleasure with well-being. If you were actually that happy all the time, your nervous system would shut down. <laughs> it is not a calm place. Not a calm place. But we can actually, and, and, and hopefully what you're picking up is we can change all this. We can actually rewire ourselves. That's the magic of all this. Uh, the neuroplasticity, the gene expression, all of these things are malleable. The person I was 35 years ago when I walked in uh, to a meeting, terrified, anxious, can't talk, is not the human being I am today. And my set point is not the same either. My natural state of being is at a greater degree of well-being than it used to be. And that did not come by having more pleasurable experiences. That won't get us there. So mindfulness, when you think of it, it's not an isolated skill. It's a skill that was always cultivated. We want to go back to its origins. It was cultivated in the context of ethics, of my attention, and of wisdom. It's the glue that helps me make my experience meaningful. It is the opportunity to note what is actually meaningful to me, as, as Judy was pointing out. What's meaningful? What's meaningful? So 
If we go back to an older Buddhist description of mindfulness, we're going to read something a bit different. Mindfulness, when it arises, calls to mind wholesome and unwholesome tendencies. Mindfulness, when it arises, follows the courses of beneficial and unbeneficial tendencies. These are beneficial, these are not. So now mindfulness is not simply a non-judgmental thing. Mindfulness is being aware of whether or not this is healthy. And it's remembering, you know, the last time I did that, it hurt. <laughs> and the last time I did this, I felt really good. So mindfulness now, when it's arising, it's, it's this metacognitive experience that's aware of, you know, John, that's not such a good idea to answer that question. <laughs> or that's a really good idea to share it this way. Uh, I am aware in the past of what's healthy and what's unhealthy. And so ultimately, one who's practicing the spiritual path is going to reject the unbeneficial and cultivate the beneficial. So in other words, mindfulness is this great wise elder that is observing in real time consciously of what I'm doing that's meaningful and what's not, what's healthy and what's not. The problem is we're generally not paying attention and we go on autopilot, and then the reward system, right? And so that automatic reward system that's not conscious, that's not making choices consciously, is seeking to feel good. And so it, it tells you things. So let me just give you a real quick explanation on this reward system and how insane it is. All of us here have had more pleasurable, wonderful events happened in your life than you could possibly remember, right? Since you were a kid till now, how many wonderful events, how many good meals, how many nice little outings, how many wonderful hugs, how many times you got the award, or uh, just a good day, or a vacation, or whatever. Uh, or for me, I'm thinking of a banana split right now. But um, How many times? How many wonderful, pleasurable experiences have you had in your life? You can't count them, can you? What would make you think that the next thing will make you happy? I've had millions of them, and I could be despondent right now. But my mind will still tell me, but when this next thing happens, it's all good. It's seeking that reward system that's based on something that's absolutely not true. That stimulus-driven stimulus -driven pleasures are going to provide me a sense of well-being and worthiness. That's not how it works. And on autopilot, my brain will do that. And then we'll worry about if it doesn't go this way or it does go that way. And in your life, it has not gone that way a lot of times, and it's gone that way a lot of times. And my set point hasn't changed. It's a vicious cycle, and it's all on autopilot. In order to develop this well-being, this inner peace, we need to consciously start developing habits and patterns that are on a different reward circuit, a different reward circuit that's going to rewire myself in a sense of lasting well-being and supports the fundamental underlying issue in my life, which is that I don't feel like I'm okay. So I use this as an analogy for the different ways of defining mindfulness. <laughs> if you've all seen the blind people trying to uh, describe an elephant, basically whatever part of the elephant, that's what they're talking about, right? So. At the tail, it's a rope and so forth. And so when people are trying to describe mindfulness, they're generally trying to describe it from a perspective they've learned about and it's meaningful to them. And I do not try to define mindfulness. <laughs> what I want to talk about is what it is to talk about the whole elephant of living mindfully. And I think there's degrees of mindfulness. Number one is, can I be aware of what I'm doing? Okay, that's number one. If I'm not aware of what I'm doing, you know, it's autopilot. How can I have uh, free will in my life if I'm not there to make a choice? Right? If I'm on autopilot, it's just making choices. I'm not, I'm not even in the process. 
So half the time we're not aware of what we're doing. Okay, you've, you're not there anyway. The other half, I am there. Now I might be on a faulty, <laughs> a faulty decision-making process thinking that, well, if this next thing happens, it'll all be good, right? How much of our life are we actually aware of what we're doing? That's the foundation. But what if we were aware of why we were doing it? That's a greater degree of mindfulness. I know what I'm doing, but now I know why I'm doing it. I know what my motives are. I know what my impulses that are driving me are. I actually know what's bringing me to this moment. Can I be aware of what I'm doing and why I'm doing it? Now, that's a pretty high degree of mindfulness. A greater degree is, is it healthy or not? To know what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, and to know whether this supports a life I feel good about or not. Can I know that in real time? That's a pretty high degree of mindfulness. There's a greater degree of mindfulness and what I think mindfulness is all about. And that is, is it based in reality? <laughs> is my decision-making process actually based in reality? And I will tell you that most of us don't live there often. Because we will still think that if that next thing happens, I'll have it made. We'll still worry about things, even though worrying about them won't help. We believe that if I eat right and exercise, I'm going to live long. We believe if I get the right job, <laughs> right, the right situation, if I maintain my car, it won't break down. I'll have a stable career. If I get a nice house and, and have this thing, that I'm going to be happy and live long and have a good life. Don't we believe these things? Does that world exist anywhere? Do you know anyone that lives in that world? Can you eat right and exercise and die tomorrow? Yeah. Can you maintain your car and have it not start tomorrow? Yeah. Can you <laughs> be in a relationship and have struggles? Yeah. Can you have a nice house and be unhappy? Yes. <laughs> in other words, this world that we live in so frequently is based on a primary misperception about the very nature of reality. And we actually live in a world that has first responders and auto mechanics. <laughs> and we live in a world that has hospitals and therapists. <laughs> we have every human being you've ever met in your life has had loss and sickness and illness and struggle and accidents. And yet, for some reason, I don't think it should happen to me. And that if I just manage things okay, I would be immune from the very nature of life. And then when a problem happens, I think it's unfair. I mean, a fundamental misperception. It wouldn't ever have to drive up. There's a lot of traffic coming up to Astro. Have you noticed that these days? And you might actually have the thought, man, I am stuck in this traffic. What about the thought, you are traffic? Are you stuck in traffic or are you traffic? <laughs> and aren't we all trying to get somewhere, right? So what I attend to and how I attend to it means, you know, a lot. So, oh, I don't know about that. So based in reality, what if I lived in the real world and I knew that I was part of traffic <laughs> instead of some ideological weird perception that there should be no traffic for me? Well, if we lived in reality more often. Here's a very basic working hypothesis. The more you live in reality, the less mental and emotional suffering you'll have. Just that simple. How much of our mental activity is just not, it's just mental activity. If I stopped doing that, I'd, I'd have less suffering. So degrees of mindfulness, being aware of what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, whether it's healthy or not, and whether it's in reality. Your life would be a lot less painful. <laughs> and you'd have the opportunity to start cultivating what we call genuine happiness, a sense of well-being, a sense of knowing that you're OK as you are in this moment. Right now, you're enough. No one to impress. You're OK. As a matter of fact, right now, I bet you there's nothing from preventing you right now in this very moment from being the person you want to be in this moment. 
Would you like to be a little more patient right now? I bet you could. Would you like to be a little kind right now in this moment? I bet you could. Right now in this moment, there's nothing stopping you from being the person you want to be. Now, if I ask you what your issues are that prevent you from being that person, well, you'd have 10 or 20 of them probably, and they would show up. So what if we started to live more accurately? So living mindfully, instead of trying to define it, let's just talk about living mindfully. And it's much more than present moment awareness. It includes and facilitates the cultivation of my attention, wisdom, and the ability to make healthy choices that foster genuine happiness and meaningful life. So this is going back to the origins of mindfulness, is that I'm able to be more present more often in a way that's wise and make choices that are actually going to be in alignment with my own deepest values. Because when I make choices that are in alignment with my deepest values, that's how I cultivate well-being, inner peace, and resiliency. I know, in other words, I develop worthiness and value by what? Doing worthy and valuable things. In the recovery communities, they'll say, you get self-esteem by doing esteemable acts. And you know what? You can't give me worthiness. Whether you like my presentation today or not, cannot give me worthiness. The only way I'm going to be able to look in the mirror and feel good about who I am is to do things that I feel good about. And that is the source of well-being. And we can't do it without our social interactions and social environments. And as Judy pointed out, we have genetic influences, we have environmental influences, and the influences that we have developed mentally, and the beauty of all that is they're all changeable. I can change my genetic expressions even. I can rewire my brain consciously, on purpose. And guess what happens if I don't do it consciously on purpose? It will not fix itself. <laughs> so the good news, you can change. The, the bad news is you're already changing. And <laughs> that's the thing. People will say, like, I can't change. You ever seen that? Can't change a habit? I got news for you. You're changing. Your habit's getting stronger. It's not not changing, right? I'm changing all the time. My habits and neuropathways are getting stronger, or I have the capacity to grow new ones. So you're not not changing. The problem is, if I don't change consciously, I'm going to change unconsciously. And I forfeit any opportunity to participate in the process. And if I don't develop the ability to be present in my own life, I forfeit that opportunity. So the good news is, yeah, it's changeable and you can do all this. Bad news is if you don't, good luck. There's an optimistic thought. So here's the ultimate reward circuit. That our genuine happiness actually comes from doing things we feel good about, not doing things that make us feel good. Right? That's, that's Judy illustrated this so well. <laughs> that brain left to its own devices is going to focus on doing things to make me feel good. If I don't develop the metacognitive ability to make healthy, sustainable choices and put myself in safe environments and build relationships that are healthy and meaningful, I am going to be a prisoner to that system. But I don't have to be. I don't have to be. And those of us that have gone through recovery and go to meetings and have developed a, a community that supports us and empowers us to make healthier choices and to be okay and to recognize we have some value, we're rewiring ourselves. We're instead of going to the corner and hanging out with Chewy, um, I'm going to a meeting where somebody's giving me a hug. Not right away because I didn't do that for a while. But eventually, uh, where I could receive a hug and, and let someone look me in the eye and, and let me know I had some value. 
and then that circuit can start to repair. So this is uh, the gift of mindfulness. And so can we put mindfulness into place in a way that is systematic, that's meaningful, that can include, and that's my big, my big deal, is to include the therapeutic and healthy processes we know can improve our lives. Because that's the main point. All of us here that do work with clients, or if we're on the receiving end, we've all been given incredible tools, many of which we don't use. We've all had great sessions with clients. They had the aha, and then it's next Tuesday. How do we empower ourselves and others that we work with to put those tools into their daily lives so that we can use them and find them meaningful? And so that's what was the quest around mindfulness and recovery, and it's a quest we actually started at Jaywalker um, to start building that process. So. Does the, what's the research show about efficacy of mindfulness and addiction treatment? Um, that's just the information, right? I always have to show it's, it's been published. <laughs> um, but here's what they found. Basically, looking at a wide range of um, programs, they found that here's what can happen. You can have structural brain changes. I mean, we, we're, we've been covering all this. Perceptual shifts, increased spirituality, et cetera. Uh, urge surfing is a really powerful thing. To feel an urge and not have to succumb to it. To actually ride the wave. Really wonderful experience. The ability to let go, increase self-awareness, values, clarification. All of these things are possible. They're all possible. But the results are going to vary, right? Just like meditating. They're going to vary. You're going to have, based on the type of mindfulness, based on what's being uh, treated, based on you know, the training of that person, you, you're going to have different results, right? It's not one size fits all. So one of the things that we did, and I know I have five minutes, so I'm going to cut to the chase, of um, here's what their unresolved issues were, is there's not a systematic training of treatment providers. There's not uh, a system of really adapting it to groups in a meaningful way. You could have a really good mindfulness teacher at a treatment center, and they get groups on Tuesday, they get groups on that. Uh, but it's not integrated fully into the program, right? It's an exercise they do, like I go do this, this. My, I go to the gym, I go to my yoga, I go to my mindfulness. Uh, but it's not an integrated system of how do I start living and the delivery, and so forth. So these are the unresolved issues that they came up with. And the thing that uh, Stefan Bate and uh, I got to work together, Jay, Jay Walker, when we started doing this, is that when we put together a, a How to Live Mindfully program, our Mindfulness Recovery, uh, we actually wound up addressing all five of these. And we didn't do it on purpose. <laughs> Like, we actually did all this, and we went to go give a talk at a conference, and then we, we looked up this research, and we go, oh, we are training. We are using it in a group format. There's an individualized system that each, each client has their own pathway, and they actually start meditating in the first week, delivery earlier in the process. You know, a lot of people think you can't meditate when you're just coming out of detox. You can actually start right away. Short. And the role of technology, we actually have an app. So we have a mindfulness recovery app uh, to allow daily uh, exercises, a community of support, and uh, all the meditations, exercises there. So it's all there. So we're really fortunate that we're able to do that. Uh, and here's the key point that I want people to really take away. and. Um, the idea that we want to focus on long-term traits and not just states of feeling good. States of feeling good will get me in trouble. Traits of changing our lives are a big deal. As a single footstep will not make a path in the earth, so a single thought will not make a pathway in the mind. To make a deep physical path, we must walk again and again to make a deep mental path. We must think over and over the 
kind of thoughts we wish to dominate our lives. So my aha moment today is not going to matter next Tuesday. My feel-good moment this afternoon is not going to matter a whole lot next Tuesday. If I don't start building these neural pathways, if I don't consistently build habits and patterns and tendencies, they fade. So reading a good book and having the aha, I'm going to change my life tomorrow, you may have noticed doesn't work very well often. Daily getting up and remembering, here's a day that will never come again in your life, and asking yourself, how do you want to live this? And then develop a practice of training my mind so I can be more attentive, and then noting what I do that's healthy and supportive and what's not. That's how we start changing lives. That's how we start building new neural pathways. That's how we start creating habits and tendencies that support a level of well-being where my set point can change. My set point of being okay, because mine, when I got here, was pretty, <laughs> it was grim, and, uh, and not an okay place. And generally now, I have a much different set point of well-being, and that happens over years of trying to cultivate living mindfully in a way that's really meaningful. So we focus on skills of living mindfully. How do I develop my attention? How do I check in? How do I become more aware? And do I have a daily reflection? So I can start noting how I'm living. And what am I doing that is actually supporting my deepest values? When's the last time you woke up and asked yourself what your deepest values are? What's more important than asking yourself that? If your genuine happiness and sense of well-being is dependent upon living in alignment with your deepest values, it's probably pretty good to know what they are. What would your life be like if you woke up every day and remembered you're about to embark upon a day that will never come again in your life and you don't know how many you have? And you ask yourself, what's really important to you? Mindfulness is about bearing in mind, not just being present with. What am I bringing to the moment? What if I want to be a little better husband? What if before I went to go see my wife in the morning, I took a little time and thought about her good qualities on purpose before I saw her? What if when I embarked upon today, I made a conscious decision to treat every single person I meet as though they're an old dear friend? How would that change my interactions with you? And I did that on purpose. In other words, the part of mindfulness that gets left out so frequently in just being aware of the moment is what am I bringing to the moment? I can start practicing qualities and attributes that grow on purpose. If I want to, you know the worst time to practice patience is when you're impatient. You know a good time to practice patience is when you don't need it. If I woke up every day and I decided I'm going to work on being patient today, I'm just going to be noticing little irritabilities, and I just practice being patient. Well, I would develop the skill of being patient. And then when impatience arises, I actually have the ability to be patient now. We generally don't try to work on things till we're in extreme situations. But on a day-to-day -day basis, we can become the person we want to be right now and start practicing those attributes. So in mindfulness and recovery, that's what we focus on is what are the qualities and the attributes that support the life you want to live. And let's start practicing. Every single day there's an activity to start doing that. And the other piece here, just to say that in our program, we actually, all the therapeutic modalities that you use, well, you can incorporate right into a daily practice of mindfulness and recovery. In other words, mindfulness is not this separate thing. It is the glue. <laughs> that allows you to put those valuable tools into your daily life. It starts with how I wake up. It starts with taking a reflection on what do I want to practice today. It has check-ins. Am I doing this? Is it skillful or not? And so this is my hope. My passion is that we can develop a, a way of using this 
incredible opportunity to transform lives. When we think about all of the problems of addiction, well, one of the solutions is pretty simple. We can rewire ourselves. We can heal the damage. We can heal the attachment issues. We can heal our relationships with others. We can rewire and reset if we start doing it consciously. And so the big goal here with mindfulness and recovery is that we are now training clinicians and therapists around the country. We're certifying them. Um, We've got our first group finishing up, our second group's coming. Mindfulness and recovery groups are starting where you can have meetings. And the thing that's really um, powerful about this for me is that we want to open doors instead of close them. So somebody belongs to this group or they belong to that group or you know they're 12-step or I don't go to 12-step or I'm NA, not AA, and, or I'm AA and I don't do that NA thing. Um, is that we want to provide a community that welcomes everyone. That says, hey, you know what? We're an inclusive support community, and we're all welcome. And we get to intermingle with each other. And people who think 12 steps are crazy get to hang out with a bunch of people in 12 steps and discover they're true. Uh, no, that, that, we, <laughs> that we all get along, and, and people uh, come together and they support each other in their pathways of recovery. And what we found is people with over three decades of recovery are doing this, the, the workbook, they're engaged in their lives, and they're reporting greater resiliency, better relationships, they're, they're flourishing in their journey. Um, and people who are new are engaged in this process. So we, it doesn't promote any particular religious or spiritual beliefs. Fundamentally, we ask, what are your values? What's your tradition? What's your belief system? Here's tools to be the person you want to be. Here's the tools to fill that hole, to recognize your worthiness and value on the journey that belongs to you, and to put yourself in a healthy environment that supports it, because none of this works in isolation. We need to build communities. So, uh, so my bigger vision is that Clients um, will receive training and groups and meetings will start. Therapists uh, will include this in their own lives. And that's what we found, the clinicians that I'm training now. We just did our midpoint check-in and all the therapists are reporting a greater degree of well-being and resiliency in their own life because they're actually having to do the, the same thing that they'd ask their clients. And so it's a really exciting time because we can look at the science now and realize that our gene expression, we can alter. I can change my neural pathways. My set point can be so good that it's better than wanting to do something else. In other words, instead of cultivating desire, I can be cultivating contentment and well-being. And that is the ultimate reward circuit, to know that you're okay and to be able to enjoy what's happening as it's happening in real time. And I think I'm at the end. If you have any further questions, you can email and all that. Um, but thank you so much for your time. Oh, yeah, one quick announcement. Tomorrow, Mary, Mike, Haley, and myself, we are doing a three-hour workshop in Carbondale. Aspire Recovery, I forgot to mention that I'm working with them. And uh, so we have a three-hour workshop, Making Mindfulness Meaningful, tomorrow in Carbondale, 9 o'clock, three hours at 3rd Street Center. You can see us about it. And all the donations will go to a way out to help support the good work that they're doing. So come and do it.